Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, I meet the head of data science at the European Gravitational Observatory, and we chat about how machine learning could drive a revolution in multi-messenger astronomy. Also, Physics World's Margaret Harris is in conversation with three winners of a competition that encourages pre-university students to create videos about quantum science and technology. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by ECS, the Electrochemical Society which is an official publishing partner of the Institute of Physics. Are you a scientist working in energy storage and technology, sensors, semiconductors, or infrastructure sustainability? You have the opportunity to present your research at the world's leading forum on electrochemistry and solid-state science. Submit your abstract by December 2nd for the 243rd Electrochemical Society meeting, which will be held in Boston, Massachusetts on May 28th through to June 2nd, 2023. The event is co-located with the 18th International Symposium on Solid Oxide Fuel Cells. Visit the ECS website at electrochem.org for details and join ECS in moving science forward. The events of the 17th of August 2017 changed astronomy forever. On that day, the LIGO-Virgo detectors spotted gravitational waves from the merger of two neutron stars. Word was quickly sent out to astronomers around the world who trained their telescopes on the merger's location in the sky. This heralded a new era in multi-messenger astronomy. And to talk about the future of this technique, I'm joined down the line by Elena Cuoco, who is at the European Gravitational Observatory in Pisa, Italy. Hi, Elena. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Amish. Thanks for having me here. Oh, it's a pleasure, Elena. I'm, I'm really fascinated by multi-messenger astronomy and uh, looking forward to, to chatting to you about it. So, so I give a, a little taste of what multi-messenger astronomy is. Can you, um, you know, perhaps uh, expand on that? W what is multi-messenger astronomy as it's, as it's done today? So um, astrophysical sources um, emit a signal of different uh, nature and forms, and these are what we call messengers. We call them messengers because they bring, they carry information about the source emission mechanism. By multi-messenger astronomy, we mean the way in which we analyze this data, this messenger, all together using different messengers that can be electromagnetic signals, neutrino or cosmic rays and uh, gravitational waves. Uh, as you said, the, uh, with the event on August 2017 and the detection of the gravitational waves followed by the detection of a gamma ray bars and all the electromagnetic counterpart, we started really the multi-messenger astronomy with the gravitational waves. 
the detection of the gamma ray bars, for example, associated to these events, uh, represent the, the first uh, proof, the direct proof that at least some binary neutron star are the progenitor of this gam- short gamma ray bars. And for the first time, we observed the coalescence of a binary neutron star system in gravitational waves, but also in all the electromagnetic counterparts, in all the electromagnetic spectrum. After uh, 11 hours of uh, the triggers of uh, the gravitational waves, for example, the optical counterpart was detected in a, in a non Os galaxy. This is happened because uh, more than 70 uh, telescopes participated to this electromagnetic campaign, looking at the position that the gravitational alert uh, was uh, sent around. So we identified this uh, event in the host galaxy that was NGC 4993, that was at a distance of 40 megaparsecs. The, uh, this event was observed also in, in other uh, wavelength emission of this electromagnetic counterpart. And uh, with the spectroscopic and photometric analysis of this data, uh, we also proved that the binary neutron star merger are also the sites where happen the so-called air process that are rapid neutron capture process in which the uh, heavy elements are produced, like gold and platinum. Uh, these events uh, um, continue emitted signal, a messenger, even uh, um, days after the first three gravitational triggers. And um, we... Uh, also, uh, a lot of information in uh, X and radio uh, in radio waves. So we realized that with this ev- event that the information that we can gain, the knowledge that we can gain, analyzing uh, the event using all this kind of messenger, all these different messenger, is really enormous. For the first time, for example, we uh, have an independent way of estimating the Hubble constant because we know the galaxy, we have the information of the redshift of the galaxy, and we have also information about the amplitude and the position of the gravitational wave signal. If we use all this information to define this single event, the quantity of knowledge that we can gain is really enormous. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's an incredible amount of knowledge just from one event, um, uh, you know, that you've spoken about. Um, I, I would imagine that it it is a challenge, though, doing multi messenger astronomy. What, what what are the challenges of of doing it um, today and and in the future when we get sort of better telescopes and better gravitational wave detectors? I would imagine there's going to be a lot of information um, coming in that needs to be managed. Exactly. The, the, with the, the, the near uh, future, in the near future, we will have a detector with a higher, very high sensitive in, in every uh, field, not only for gravitational waves, but we will have a new detector for neutrino or gamma ray bars. Uh, the, the challenge will be not only for the multi-messenger part, but also uh, only for the single detector, because the sensitivity will be so high that we will detect many of these events. So we will have to deal with a large amount of data, and uh, we have to 
find this large amount of data that most of the time is noise, we have to find all this signal. For example, for gravitational wave detector, we can even have the challenge that many of these astrophysical signal will be superimposed. And we need to distinguish them from the noise. If we think to the multi-messenger analysis, you can imagine that we have to deal with a large amount of data heterogeneous data because each detector has its own kind of data that can be image, can be time series, can be particle tracks. So if we want to work in a real multi-messenger data analysis frame, we need to afford the problem of this heterogeneous data and uh, we need to be fast. This will be the, ma- the main challenge for the f- future. We want to uh, work in real time. That means that we need to analyze data as fast as possible, produce alerts. Each uh, detector can send alerts to the others. Uh, neutrinos can say, okay, look, uh, there are <laughs> some neutrinos in this, in, this, uh, in this part of the sky or the gravitational waves can, do, can give this uh, can give the same information. And we need to send this kind of alerts around as fast as possible. So this would be the, the really big challenge for this kind of experiment. Uh, analyze a huge quantity of data in the fastest way as possible. And, and you've published a paper recently where you and, and colleagues look at how artificial intelligence can address these challenges. Could, could, you, could you just explain how, well, I suppose what artificial intelligence is in a nutshell and how it can it could help managing all this data? Yeah, yes. We uh, very often talk more about machine learning or artificial intelligence. The idea that is behind this, uh, um, this description is the fact that you can have some algorithm, some uh, data analysis workflow that uh, learn itself from the data. So you don't have to give any information about the model, uh, the pattern that you are looking for, but uh, the algorithm itself learn things from the data. So we uh, started using the artificial intelligence in our field, especially in gravitational waves, but also the other detectors in the other fields started using artificial intelligence because it is the right tool uh, to um, deal with these two challenges that I told before. So a, a huge amount of data and being fast. Usually the artificial intelligence need to have some data sets where you can find the, the, the information that is looking, it is looking for. So once you train this pipeline, this algorithm, this data set, it will be very fast in the prediction. So imagine that you want to estimate the mass of your event or other kind of parameter from the events that produce this signal. So you can train your pipeline on a data set where there are a lot of signal. And once you have the model trained, it will be very fast to do a prediction of the new data where you don't know anything about the information of the signal. And we started using this. We started using in a different aspect. It is very useful for the data quality where we have to uh, characterize the noise because all of this experiment uh, has a 
a big enemy, that is the noise. The noise is often uh, characterized by non-stationarity, by non-linearities, and even by the presence of this transient signal that are due to noise, but that can mimic the gravitational wave or astrophysical signal inside. So if you have some pipeline that is able to distinguish in the, a rapid way what is a signal, what is a noise, this can help a lot your analysis. And so how would multimodal artificial intelligence techniques be implemented? Would you, would you be running them in real time as, as data comes from gravitational wave detectors or, or from telescopes? Is that how it would work? Um, let me explain, uh, first of all, what is multimodal, because uh, we are uh, we started working with uh, artificial intelligence, single uh, modalities, let's say, uh, data analysis. Uh, multimodal is um, uh, in a way to learn data, taking input of different uh, uh, forms uh, the, with a different information, it's better to say in this way, with a different information. And you want to merge the information of these different modalities in one single event. Uh, uh, this is how the brain usually works. Um, I'm talking in this moment, I'm using my hands, I'm using some expression in my face, and for you it's easier to understand what I want to say, if I'm happy or not, and so on. This is uh, the usual way in which the brain works. And there are already in other fields uh, Pipelines work is in this in this direction. So multimodalities and multimodal machine learning is already used in other field where you want to gain as much as information as possible of what is happening. So this is used, for example, to study um, the social network, what is happening there, and 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 so on. So let's think. Imagine that you have an, a, a really a picture. And uh, you have a picture with a text, with a caption. You can learn much more from the uh, picture with the caption. So the idea is, why don't we apply the same technique also to the astrophysical events? We know that the source can emit signal, different signal, different modalities that brings different information. So the idea is to uh, work in, the, in a similar way acquire these different modalities and analyze in a global view. So when we started multi-messenger uh, analysis, we started in this uh, electromagnetic follow-up. So we uh, have a trigger, we send the alert, and then we analyze the data. The idea with the multimodal is to do this analysis in a global way. So acquiring this data and analyze. This is not an easy task, obviously, because um, not only you have to uh, deal with the technicalities linked to the different uh, experiments, the different background noise, the different signal that you want to analyze. This is also, let's say in this way, political <laughs> problem because you have to uh, build open collaboration. You have to share your data, share your software, and start collaborating with the other uh, detector, other collaboration with the, a single uh, a single goal. And so, in 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 this situation, the 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 multimodal each mode is w would it be a data stream from a specific instrument? Uh, 
So data coming from a neutrino detector or data coming from a gamma ray detector, are, are those the different modes or is it is it more complicated than that? Exactly. This is uh, exactly what uh, we we meant, what you are saying. So for us, modalities are different data stream. So each uh, experiment has its own stream uh, of different nature. So from we can have image, we can have time series, we can have particle tracks, and each of these different data stream brings its own information. So in our case, multimodal, uh, techniques will be merge, fuse the information from this uh, from from this uh, pipeline. Uh, usually, we implement this uh, simply. The, the easiest way is uh, to uh, analyze one single data stream, extract the information, and merge it in, in a single, uh, let's say, neural network. <laughs> a technical. Uh, uh, way to call it a machine learning or artificial intelligence pipeline. And so the idea is that you're going to have all of this information coming into a an, an artificial intelligence system, and it, it will have learned to look or to identify certain patterns uh, in that information and, and tell you things about the event that, um, that I suppose you may have missed if, if, if you were analyzing it using other techniques? Exactly. So what we, we, we think is that we, very soon we will have a lot of these events. So at now we have this single multi-messenger events with the gravitational waves. But as soon as we become more and more sensitive, we will have a lot of this kind of, of events. So we can train our artificial intelligence in uh, gathering this information, learn this partner in your data. And once you will have new uh, events similar to the one that you are already acquired, it will be very fast in a do prediction. So this is the, the main goal. And, and so if, 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 if such techniques are implemented, what, what sort of discoveries um, could they make? Um, I suppose you, you'd be looking out for other neutron star mergers and, and getting lots of information from that. But I'm guessing that there's other sort of events that you could look at as well. What sort of discoveries could we expect in the future from this? Uh, yeah, exactly, you, you are right. We we have uh, we start learning very well the uh, physics of uh, the um, coalescing binary system, uh, black hole, black hole, or with the neutron star. But there are other signals that we know can emit gravitational waves, but we don't know uh, the physics of this kind of emission. We don't. We are not able to write down the physics of this gravitational wave emission. And these are the core collapse supernova. There are models, for example, that uh, make a prediction on the kind of emission that we can expect from this source. Uh, but at, uh, up to now, we didn't detect any of these events. I, since this kind of signal are very, very um, low amplitude, so the signal-to-noise ratio is very low. That I mean that the amplitude is very low with respect to the background noise. Having information from other messenger could really help in understanding the kind of phenomena that uh, characterize this 
this events. Uh, there are uh, things that we don't know about uh, the uh, content of this kind of, of, of stars, so what is called the equation of state. And um, making this kind of merging of information can help us in having uh, a better vision of the uh, physical mechanism. Uh, let me also give an example. We, when we start things to this uh, multimodal uh, um, astrophysical analysis, we made a, a simple test. We produced a data set containing uh, gravitational waves and gamma ray bars emitted by the same uh, source put in different region of the sky. For some of these events, we assumed to know the distance, for other not. So we set up this multimodal pipeline and uh, train this pipeline on the specific data set. And then we try to make prediction on the distance for the events for which we don't have access to the distance. And the predictions are in good agreement with what we expect. So this is a typical example. So image that you have much more information, so you can all even have information about the population studies, where are this kind of source and which is the distribution in the sky. Wow. Well, that sounds really exciting. I'm, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be looking forward to, um, to, to, to hearing about some of those discoveries. Well, thanks for being on the podcast, Elena. Thank you, Amish. Very happy to be here. And uh, Elena and her colleagues have published a paper in Nature Computational Science. And uh, the paper is called Computational Challenges for Multimodal Astrophysics. Could you describe an aspect of quantum science or technology in just three minutes? That's the challenge of Quantum on the Clock, a competition that was launched this year by the Institute of Physics, Quantum Optics, Quantum Information, and Quantum Control Group. Physics World's Margaret Harris catches up with three students who rose to the challenge and won. We've got some special guests on the podcast this week. There are Hannah Chapman, May Sway, and Margaret Leo, and they are three of the winners of the re a recent competition for school students in the UK and Ireland called Quantum on the Clock. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hello. <laughs> now, the Quantum on the Clock pod competition was organized by members of the Quantum Optics, Quantum Information, and Quantum Control Group within the Institute of Physics, which publishes Physics World. Um, maybe one of you could tell our listeners what the competition was about and what you were asked to do. Uh, it was to ask us to uh, explain something about quantum mechanics in three minutes, and especially to someone who's never learned some anything about this topic. Okay, okay. And um, how did you find out about the competition? It was pretty simple for us because we were in the same physics class and simply our teacher told us, oh, there, there was a competition about it. Do you want to enter? And because we're both boarders, so we literally lived next door to each other last year. So we were like, do you want to do it? And yeah, so we just entered it. Yeah. And Hannah, how about you? 
Um, I can't actually remember where I found out about it, which is a bit embarrassing. But I remember, I think it was probably on a university outreach newsletter, but I remember looking at it probably back last March and thinking, wow, this sounds absolutely brilliant. I'm definitely going to enter this. So Hannah, your video won best individual video in the, in the competition. Mm -hmm. And it's about the clash between the Copenhagen and Everett interpretations of quantum mechanics. Let's hear a short clip from that video. Albert Einstein, Erwin Schrödinger, Werner Heisenberg, Niels Bohr established a terrific theory that no one had thought of before. Classical mechanics seemed unable to explain the nature of our universe in the microscopic domain. So in the 1920s, all these folks discovered the laws which the theory of quantum physics and electrodynamics explores. Interest led them to discover the fundamental paradigm particles have no definite position within space-time. Every building block of matter cannot only be expressed as a particle, but a wave, and from this much progressed. What led you to choose that as the subject for your video? Um, well, the Copenhagen versus Everett interpretation has been an area of quantum physics which has fascinated me for a long time. And I think it's just that it's a major controversy which underlies probably the most important theory in modern physics and yet physicists are so divided about it and also you know the implications of these two different theories on society you know I, I think they have a very um significant impact on our lives and I, I just think it's really exciting you know on, on the one hand uh if you look down to um just a wave function collapse you know a piece of an equation and that can result in you know, the idea of a multiverse on one hand. And I just thought that was really cool. Yeah, I mean, it's really cool. And I guess also somewhat you know, sort of controversial. So May and Margaret, you're the winners in the best team video category. And your video was about black body radiation. Let's have a short clip from that as well. Do you know how people became aware that instead of being able to divide everything infinitely, sometimes we can only reach some smallest indivisible units, quanta? Hmm, I think I've heard of it before. Is it something about black body? Black bunny? It's black body. A black body is an ideal object that absorbs all types of energy and re-emits them in the form of radiation. In the 19th century, scientists were interested in how much energy per unit volume was emitted in different frequencies of the radiation. So, they set up an experiment like this to find out. What inspired you to dive into that topic? Um, the f actually, we chose the topic because we think that this is the most fundamental knowledge of the quantum mechanics because it's the door which opens the door of quantum mechanics. And before preparing for the competition, both of us had some kind of knowledge about the black body radiation. I did some previous research, like deeper research about it. So we kind of discussed together and then started our choice on the black body radiation. Yeah, because, because actually at that time, I just knew what it was like. I knew there was um, cat, uh, you know, the, uh, catastrophe. Yeah, yeah, the, the catastrophe. But I, I didn't know anything uh, really deep. But Margaret actually knew like the actual derivations of the equations. So we think it would be good to discuss about this. Do you want to explain what the ultraviolet catastrophe is, just for the benefiting listeners who haven't haven't remembered what it is? Uh, yeah. So 
At first,、uh, there was a derivation by Rillet and Jardine, and then they didn't focus on the quantization of energy and thought the energy is continuous. And then they derive the okay. So firstly, the black derivation is about the sum physicists were calculating the sum of energy of the universe, and initially they didn't realize that the energy is discrete. So that they use continuous energy and use、um, PV equals nRT to calculate the sum of energy. And when they did the integration, they got an infinite value, which means the universe contains an infinite amount of energy, and it's not realistic. But when Planck came in, he firstly used E equals HV. So he kind of proposed the idea of quantization, and he also used The discrete random variable to calculate the sum of energy of the universe, and when he did the integration of this formula, he got a finite energy of the universe. Much better behaved, definitely. So, <laughs> this is not going to come across well in the podcast because it's an audio format. But both of your videos had some fantastic graphics in them. How did you create those graphics? And、um, is this something you'd done before? Um, yes,、yeah, so my video was actually an animation, a stop motion animation,、um, and the wonderful graphics that you can see on my video were produced in the studio of my bedroom using、um, an upturned coffee table with a piece of glass from an old toaster,、um, a few skittles and、uh, like smarties,、um, a couple of sharpies, and yeah, just an animation app that I, I downloaded off my phone. But,、um, I, I kept eating the subatomic particles, which didn't end well in the end. <laughs> <laughs> the smarties, presumably.、Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and May and Margaret, what you use some? Yeah. How did you? How did you make your video? Um, we did the animation using Procreate. It's like a drawing app、uh, in the iPad, and、um, we literally drew the pictures、uh, like picture by picture, and then. The more pictures you drew, the more continuity it would look. And but for like、uh, writing formula and something, we recorded、uh, the screen so that it's not picture by picture. Otherwise, it would look too incontinuous. <laughs> and what was the most challenging thing about making the video? Was it the the graphics part, or was it coming up with the ideas? You know, what was what was the most difficult bit?、Um, I think the most difficult bit is. For me, because、um, although I knew something about black body radiation, sometimes the thing that I wrote is not what I thought. So when I wrote the first draft and May looked at it, she found lots of unknown terminology because I just assumed that everybody knew it. And then May, she 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 kind of the role as a judger and picked up everything that is unclear from my first draft, and then we kind of went through this together for three days. Yes. That's the advantage of having a team, and, and it sounds like the two of you have complementary strengths that you can use to sort of bounce off each other. Hannah, how about you? What was the most difficult thing for you?、Um, I definitely found like the graphics quite challenging,、um, particularly using the technology. I, I kind of left my entry until the last minute, so I, I was scrabbling like two days before the deadline. I think I spent、um, yeah two solid days off in my room trying to get it done, and I, I think I.、Um, Yeah, definitely underestimated the time that it takes to create a three-minute-long stop-motion animation, frame by frame. 
<laughs> yeah, it's really Philly. It gives you a good appreciation for what goes on in like the Wallace and Gromit sort of mm. films. They, that takes absolute yeah, hours definitely. to do all that. Yeah. Okay. So you're all sixth form students at the moment. You know, what are your plans for the future? Are you planning to study physics or is physics going to be something in the background for you in the future? What's, what's your plans? We both want to take a physics degree in the university. And I think for both of us, uh, we want to do research after university. But if it, if we find it too hard or we're not that in intellectually able to do that, we will like switch to the others. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. And you, that's, that's the answer for both of you, May. Yeah. Okay. And Hannah? Um, yeah, quite similar, really. Uh, I'm completely in love with physics. I, I just want to study physics for the rest of my life. So I'm definitely planning on doing a physics degree. I've actually applied to do physics and philosophy as a joint honours degree because I'm really into the theoretical side of physics. And I also really enjoy essay writing and kind of grappling with the philosophical questions like, you know, the, the issue of quantum measurement um, from a very philosophical angle. So, yeah, I've, I've applied to do that course and hopefully go on to do some uh, theoretical research in, in the future. Well, wonderful. It's wonderful to see people with such interest in physics. And thank you for sharing that interest with us. Hannah, May, Margaret, it's been nice to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much. And congratulations again. Thank you. Thank you. And if listeners to the podcast would like to check out their winning Quantum on the Clock videos, you'll find links to them from a blog post on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, How to Explain Quantum Technology in Just Three Minutes. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast, which is sponsored by ECS, the Electrochemical Society. Thanks to Elena Cuoco, Hannah Chapman, May Sway, Margaret Leo, and Margaret Harris for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do listen to the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester looks at what is being done to reduce the carbon impacts of big sporting events, such as the World Cup and the Commonwealth Games. You can find all the stories episodes on the Physics World website and also at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.